0: Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us.
1: Listeners, hi. Hi, everybody. (laughs) It's still June, so it's (laughs) still Pride Month. Yay, Pride Month!
0: Yeah. Do you do anything, like, different during Pride Month? I think about, you know, like, all the corporations that all of a sudden have all their rainbow things and their support, but, like, I'm trying to think of, other than, like, just actually being a good ally what we should be inviting people to do to like celebrate pride in an embodied way.
1: I work it into, so when I teach yoga, I have themes to each of my classes and I actually work in lessons from the members of the LGBTQ plus community into my themes. I did a class celebrating transitions and celebrating the spaces in between. So we're moving from one posture to another But we don't feel that in-between movement. And I talk about how I took that lesson from our trans and non-binary brothers, sisters, and siblings, because they give us the lesson of those amazing in-between spaces. So we would not as a culture be thinking about without them. I love that. And you're so right. And humans are bad at in-betweens. Yeah. Absolutely. And so using that in my yoga classes and actually grounding people in that embodied feel this in-between space. Mm-hmm. We can be in this in-between space and that's okay. It's so important. So that's one of the things I do during Pride Month is what are the lessons that I have learned from folks in my sphere that I can bring to everybody else and just kind of reflect on myself. Right. I dig that so much. That's amazing. Yeah. What about you, Sarah?
0: I love when I ask questions that I myself don't have an answer to. And then when the mm. is turn on me, I'm like, I don't know. It'll be interesting this month because usually I told everyone the low last episode, I, ha- I do rainbows in my hair for June. And this month I did not do rainbows. So I'm guessing I will not get the same reaction. Because when I mm-hmm. do it during Pride Month, literally people have run up to me to tell me how much they love my hair. And I'm guessing that part of that is like, thank you for being visible and oh, right. So that's why I'm specifically telling everybody that my hair is the bi pride flag. Like, hey, I'm representing, like I'm showing it loud and proud because so many times people just assume because I'm married to a cis straight man, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm straight. And it's funny, I actually, one time on a podcast, a friend of mine was like, yeah, we're both straight women. And I was like, I'm bi. And she was like, <gasps> Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. And it was like, <laughs> after the podcast is over, she's like, "Oh my God, you should take that out." And I'm like, "No, actually, I think it's great. I wasn't mad or offended in any yeah. way. like I understand that. And so it's funny, I think about by erasure a lot. I feel like it's been like in the past, like, seven or so years when trans issues have started to like really come to the forefront and mm-hmm. at least in what the news and whatever I'm consuming and as soon as that happened I asked a group of queer therapists is it still okay to be bi because I didn't want mm. to be just reinforcing the gender binary because like in my head oh, I like, oh, I shit. is bisexuality just being attracted to men or women but when I think about who I'm attracted to it's not true but I just don't like the term Pansexual. That's Mm -hmm. just, that doesn't feel right to me. And thankfully, like all the therapists in that group are like, no, 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 bi doesn't mean men and women, blah, 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 blah. But I think about the word queer and I think about who needs it. And this is kind of a silly thing, but like I don't need it because of the privilege that I have, right? Like I have straight straight passing privilege, even though, like, come on, anybody who looks at me, if you think I'm straight, like you're not paying attention, but I have that privilege. And so I don't need the word queer in a way to like find my people. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's what I am. I just don't. It's like there's like a scarcity thing inside me that says like, if I say that I'm queer, I'm taking that away from somebody who needs it as protection, who needs it as comfort. And I know that's not true, but that's what happens
1: inside me. Mm -hmm. I got kind of sad hearing you say that. Yeah. Right. So it's almost like, It's just as much your word as it is anyone else's. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. Like my brain knows
0: that that's true. And I think about how much I have not had to fight to be who Mm -hmm. I am. Yeah. So yes. And like if I say the word queer in straight spaces, I feel like totally fine. But when I say it in queer spaces, then I'm like, okay, who is judging me?
1: Mm. Yeah. It feels like a really sticky place. Mm-hmm. Right. And I desperately want to be able to help you. I don't know. I'm feeling really <laughs> pulled to be like, and maybe that's part of the lesson is like, sometimes we're we're in these sticky mm-hmm. spaces and there is no right or wrong. There is no right. binary of yes or no. And sometimes those in-between spaces are, are where we live. And sometimes we have to embrace that. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing is embracing this like, uncomfortable space where, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, truthfully, like I don't walk around thinking about it that
0: much. So I wonder if my practice for Pride Month can be to sort of sit with that
1: word and sit with my identity as a queer person and just see what comes up. I love that. And that's something that in our last episode, you know, Aisha kind of talks about inviting me to do to sit with my identities and see what my identities actually mean to me. So I think that's a good practice for anybody. And something I do during Pride Month is sit with my straight identity and just kind of reflect on what that means in the world, what it does to people around me and how I can be a better ally. It's a great thing for everyone to do. Yeah. We'll report back. Yeah. And you report back to us. Yeah. No, that's what I was saying. I I will report back. I didn't put the I. I know that was. Yeah, that was a you to the audience, to our listeners. If you try this exercise, let us know what you come up with.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, what we forgot to do in the last intro that we should definitely do in this one. Talk about our merch. Yeah, we should talk about our merch. And okay, so the thing is. The therapists are terrible at marketing most of the time because it feels like, oh, like I shouldn't put myself forward. I'm helping other people and blah, blah, blah. But you know what, guys, we live in capitalism and so we kind of have to do it. And this podcast does not pay for itself. And one day I would love for it too. So if you want to support us in that way at all, you could go to tinyurl.com slash and purchase some stuff from Tee Public. We have a couple cute designs. You could also join us on Patreon and donate as little as a dollar a month. And it warms our tiny little hearts. And if you are in the US, I will send you a little welcome gift. And if you're in the UK, Anne will send you a little welcome gift. I sure will. Right? Yeah. And then also... We were just talking about this before, too. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcast. And we were just talking about how I was like, oh, yeah, sometimes I just ask my friends to do it. And Anne was like, I have never reviewed a podcast because nobody really gets it that it actually helps. But it does, because every time I'm asked to be a guest on somebody's podcast, I look and see if there are
1: reviews. And if there are none, then I'm like, hmm, what's happening here? Oh, yeah. Never thought of that. Right, it's but now I'm going to have to start reviewing other people's podcasts, right? OPP. Oh,
2: uh-huh. no, you know me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm gonna have to start. <laughs> we could turn this intro into a musical if we really wanted to. Absolutely, we could. I'm gonna have to start reviewing other people's podcasts so I garner some podcasting karma. Yeah. True. Exactly. Yep. Well, let's talk about today's guest,
0: Christine Leone. So Christine is, I'm trying to think of the words that I want to use to describe her because she's just wonderful. Mm. I mean, I don't know if I can think of another word. What I see, and she's going to be so embarrassed that I said this to everyone who's listening, but when I see her, I just want to like, support her brilliance and like make sure that everybody gets a chance to hear what she has to say Mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's just because that's been something that she hasn't has and I'm sort of like that's my codependent like you know a child of an alcoholic family sort of like coming out and being like I see the thing that you need and I'm going to give it to you or if it's just that she just has that I don't know, just that thing that because when we I, and I think we talk about this in the episode when I asked her to be on the podcast, she's like, you know, I don't like have a social media following or anything. Right. And I'm like, you know, I don't care. Right. Like, you know, that this podcast is not just publicity. I actually just want to have conversations with cool people.
1: Yeah. So one of the things, as you just said, because one of the things that really struck me from what she said was about her experience of racism in Portland and you said it's such a progressive city and I've had similar conversations with people of color in Brighton which is lots of hippies lots of people who say they're really progressive but then when you talk to the people of color that doesn't really translate and so I really hear this like oh I see what you need and like you didn't get the support and I felt that in that moment when she was talking about that experience I was like ah! Uh, They just want to like retroactively help your experience. (laughs) Right, right, right.
0: And, you know, for fear of sounding like two white saviors here, at least the energy that I'm coming to this with is not like, oh, I'm going to help you. It's more just like I have a platform and I'd love to share it with you. That's the energy that I have. And I know like Christine knows me well enough to know that there's a mutuality there and not
1: just to like, I'm going to help you. Right. Yeah. Because that's problematic. White people, just so you know, don't do that. But I think what it does do for us as white people is challenge us to see where we are being like armchair activists and where we can do more and be more active rather than kind of just speaking about. Mm -hmm. Hey, I think this should change. Looking at you, Portland and Brighton. Yeah. Well, and something that I didn't mention when we were talking about Aisha's episode
0: that was the last episode to be released is she said something in the episode about your gaze being appropriate. Mm -hmm. She talked a lot about the white gaze and how that can be really problematic for people of color. And I think that is probably one of the best things that we can do as white people for people of color is just to see them clearly. And that involves sitting with our whiteness. And
1: knowing that that's there, mm, it's also something we're doing for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's important to mention because yeah. one of the things racism is a is a white person's problem. Mm-hmm. And we are while the the violence and the sort of outward threat is not landing on us. It is coming from us, but we hurt. Mm-hmm from racism, because we're denying ourselves and we're losing out on a lot. So the gaze being appropriate only opens out our field of vision.
0: Yeah. Right. To everyone too. Yeah. I think that's one of my biggest wounds is not being seen clearly by my my mother Mm -hmm. specifically. And so that's just the thing that like always comes up for me is the desire to see clearly And I guess part of seeing clearly is recognizing the bias and the lenses and like all of the things that we come with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shall I introduce Christine? Please. So, Christine Leone, she's been a social worker and therapist since 2008, and she was born in New York City then lived in Portland, Oregon, and has settled in Chicago for around 20 years. And for the last several years, she's been focused on creating a sense of home after divorce and seeking balance between self-care and community care while providing healing spaces for others. She currently lives with her eight-year-old son and partner of five years. So please enjoy my delicious conversation with Christine Leone. Christine! I'm so glad you're here! All right, Hi. (laughs) You're like, please don't. That's a lot of energy
2: for the anxiety (laughs) I'm experiencing right now. (laughs) I tend to be a little bit more, appear a little bit more subdued, even though, you know, inside there's a lot going on. (laughs) What Enneagram number are you? Last time I took the test, I was a two with a Was it wing, eight wing? Well,
0: you're either a one or a three wing, but maybe eight was your second
2: highest number. Okay, yes. Okay, all right. I feel both of those. Yeah, okay. I don't know much about Enneagram, so um. Well, Sarah Suzuki has
0: failed then in her work because she and I are both obsessed with it.
2: (laughs) Well, it was definitely part of the hiring process. Yes, it was, (laughs) it was.
0: So speaking of that, that's how I know you. You work for my BFF, Sarah Suzuki. And then you did a, a wounded healer group with me. And yeah, and then you... So, well, actually, just introduce yourself.
2: Say what you want to say about
0: what you're doing in the world right now.
2: Well, I'm Christine Leone. I am a social worker by training, you know, for better or worse. I graduated in 2008. So I've been doing therapy or case management. Um, I tried a stint at a PhD program for a while and and left. But most recently, about a year ago, I started working at Chicago Compass Counseling with Sarah Suzuki after leaving nonprofits, you know, you know, working. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. And it has been kind of a, a life changing or pivotal year for me in big part, I think, because of my career Mm -hmm. change. And we'll dig into
0: all of the things that you found in between uh, (laughs) community mental health and private practice. Let's do your therapist origin story. So why the hell did you decide to become a social worker?
2: I think it, it was a combination of tapping into my passions and strengths and just practicality. Also, I was one of those folks that like went to university right away and was just completely overwhelmed and had no idea what I wanted to do. So I ended up leaving university and just working for several years. What was your undergrad in? Well, eventually it was psychology. So during that period when I was working, I did some work with some attorneys who defended folks who were in the the criminal judicial system. And I think that work kind of opened my eyes on a deeper level to just, you know, I mean, injustice seems like such a superficial word for it, but just the way the cards are stacked against folks, right? you know, intentionally. But I knew I didn't want to be an attorney, <laughs> but I knew that I needed to get a degree. So I just, I started going back to school And I think just through like exposure of like the different, you know, careers available to somebody, if they do have this kind of awareness and want to do something about it, you know, social work just ended up making the most sense to me. And then I I just kind of worked my way through like undergrad, you know, got into the master's program. And since then, you know, I've kind of been doing this. Yeah. So it was
0: really born out of this desire to help people.
2: Yes. Yes. That is very too. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. To not only help folks, but I feel like I've always had this desire to like, once I know something or once I figure it out, I really want to share it. It just doesn't feel right keeping it to myself. Mm-hmm. And I think I've always had this kind of inherent need to remind folks, like, it's not you that's broken. A lot of this has to do with our environment. And I don't think, you know, necessarily I always articulate with that. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of the sense that I always had in the the message that I felt was important to convey to folks. Mm -hmm. Did you have either a therapist or a mentor teacher or somebody in
0: your life that sort of helped you? Because I'm guessing that as a child, you were feeling the things, but not having language for it. Like who supported your awakening to like what was really going on?
2: I'm not sure that there was anyone there specifically. I just, I think from a very young age, I always had a sense that something was not right. And I think That may be in part because of just my cultural identity, like being halfway and half Latina. I felt like I had kind of a foot in different worlds and a window to different experiences. There were some things that awarded me lots of privilege, but I also had a window and what it's like not to have privilege. And that made me more sensitive, I think, to imbalance of privilege around me. And that just kind of came out, I think, a lot as confusion. Like, you know, I don't understand, like, you know, my friends are just as smart, just as capable, just as good, I guess, as I am. And why the discrepancy. I um, grew up until I was 13 in New York City. And then I, I made the move to Portland, Oregon, which is literally like black and white, (laughs) just the differences. And and suddenly I Mm -hmm, was, mm -hmm. you know, I went from being, you know, ethnically ambiguous, I think, to really just sticking out more, just, you know, having darker features and a more curvaceous, you know, figure. (laughs) I spent a lot of time just feeling like I didn't belong. And I wasn't 100% sure why. And I think, you know, some of that you know, it was naturally internalized, like there's something wrong with me. But now that I look back on it, like I realized what it was structurally and and why, you know, maybe I was perceived differently than others. And it's so, I
0: mean, I'm a white person. <laughs> so, of course, I never thought about it. But a friend of mine who was on the podcast before, Anjali Shah Johnson, she's half white and half Indian. And her husband is Filipino. And so her children are, you know, definitely not white. And she told me about all the racism that she's experienced there. And, I mean, it's so fucked, right, that Portland is this really super liberal place and yet that's like racism is being acted out there just as harshly as it, probably if you were in a red state
2: oh yeah yeah for sure and i think there was a sense and actually my my mom we moved there because my mom got into a law school there mm. so how old are you at that time i was 13 And I remember my mom told me, she was one of the few people of color in in this program. And my mom told me that one of the first speeches that professors gave was that, you know, as a person of color, you need to be very careful if you leave Portland, if you leave the city limits, because we didn't know at that time. But I think it's like the headquarters of um, some skinhead groups and learned a lot more since then. But yeah, I mean, under the guise of liberalism, there's Definite, just blatant racism, yeah, but I've discovered also that that's kind of everywhere, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, do you feel
0: comfortable talking about some of your experiences in community mental health because I know that was a really that was so impactful,
2: and you mean, just like my overall experience like in nonprofits and all of that, yeah, mhm, mhm, and how
0: racism impacted you there
2: because of my skin color and background, I think the more overt racism, like I didn't experience necessarily, just a lot of and which I mean a lot of that's how racism plays out a lot of times in just very kind of passive aggressive insidious. Yeah, insidious Mm -hmm. ways. And I'm still kind of trying to process this like in my own mind and body. But I think what one thing that sticks out to me is that in nonprofits and community mental health, there's a whole lot of talk about systemic change, doing the right things and, and everything. The talk sounds good, you know, DEI initiatives and, and all of that. But folks are really just unable and unwilling. I don't want to say unable, but unwilling to apply those things to themselves. Mm-hmm. Just look down the list of, you know, the characteristics of white supremacy that is the hardest part about working in nonprofits. It's not the work. You know, I loved the work. I loved the folks that I worked with, a lot of my coworkers. It's the abuse, you know, of folks higher up who are perpetuating the same beliefs and systems that we're claiming to stand against. So, yeah,
0: I think, I mean, I, I'm, hearing a lot of my husband's experiences in where he's working and I guess so if I had to make up like what I think part of the biggest problem is is I mean I want to call it codependency just because that's the lens that I might look at it but it's really saviorism probably to put it in more of the terms around white supremacy and for a social worker who is like okay I'm gonna save people right i'm gonna help people and if our real underlying motivation is to help people we can do really fucked up things in order to have ourselves believe that we're helping someone Mm -hmm. instead of actually looking at the person and seeing what they need right in front of us and that like you're saying this unwillingness to apply it to themselves This is why we have this fucking podcast, because I am desperate for therapists to do their own work because of the harm that's perpetuated. And I mostly frame it as hurting clients, potentially. But what you're sharing, too, is how they hurt one another. And the, the power structures that are created when people think they're doing good and can't take an honest look at themselves are so there's nothing more dangerous than a therapist who is unwell because they know all of the language. They know mm-hmm. everything yeah. what to say, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what's happening underneath.
2: Unwell and not looking at it. <laughs> yeah, right. Mm
0: hmm.
2: Mm hmm. Thank you for that clarification,
0: because I am unwell a lot of the <laughs> time.
2: Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> right,
0: right. Yeah, unwell and unwilling to see it. Well, I know you've talked and we've talked a little bit about sort of your like unpacking power and how that's impacted you. And I'm, I'm just curious if you have anything you want to
2: share around that, your
0: exploration.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was actually just talking about this, just the, the whole concept of power and control. I think in recent years, just from my own experiences and our experiences in our country, I just feel like there's an incredible lack of awareness about how it's not only on a government level. I mean, when we talk about corporations, like we talk about like the the culture is set by whoever's at the head of the corporation. And so the same thing, you know, with our country or the world, like the folks in power, really set the tone for how we treat each other on an individual, mm-hmm. interpersonal level. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the times people become aware of that is when they have had to survive situations where everything was completely out of their control, going through trauma either at the hands of the state or somebody you care about. Because all of that is about power and control. You know, in this past year, since I've had more time and space, you know, to think about things, I remember being confused as to, like, why can't you see this? Why can't you see, like, the paternalism, the gaslighting? And who is you? I just imagine myself in conversation with anyone, whether we're talking about somebody's partner or whether we're talking about somebody's workplace or whether we're talking about the state, the prison system education. This is all intentional. It's all about power and control. It's all about gaining the power, all about gaining control. Mm-hmm. And we can't get out of that cycle without getting out of that cycle. right? And so I think that that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Why am I or or others so aware of this while others can be So safely removed from it. And I guess it's just having proximity to that experience, whether you're a black human being in this country or whether you have been sexually assaulted or, you know, gone through some sort of relational trauma. Mm -hmm. that that's when you can't not see it. (laughs) Like there isn't the luxury to not see it. Right,
0: right. I mean, I think you're right. I think it is proximity to whatever is considered standard in whatever category right whether it's white in race whether it's male cis male you know in terms of gender and i mean i remember very distinctly when even before my husband and i were married and i can't remember we were planning to go somewhere and i had to take the train and i had said to him i can't get off at that stop when it's dark and he was like what he literally had never thought about that before. And then when I was in grad school and was working as a waitress, coming home late at night with a bunch of cash, he was then like, okay, I'm going to give you mace, make sure. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, like, right, all right, yeah. I've been I a female this. <laughs> for this long. So, like, I know how to take care of myself. And then, of course, like, I get mace in my eye at some point <laughs> because that's how
2: mace always works. You <laughs> get yourself. You know, I, I've just been thinking about that a lot. Like, why do I sometimes feel like, Almost like what Chicken Little, like running around saying that the sky is falling and nobody else Mm -mm, is seeing it. The sky is falling. Yeah. You know, just some personal disclosure on my part. You know, I have been through situations where, you know, I came face to face with the effects of power and control. And so I, it doesn't take much for me to sniff it out. I can sniff it out a mile away.
0: One of the things that you said struck me that
2: the system is designed
0: this way. And if listeners have been around for a while and you remember my, um, oh gosh, I haven't figured out how to do this, but the person was on my podcast as Robin Henderson Espinoza and now goes by Roberto Che Espinoza. And at that time... Robin was the one who was like, yeah, this is intentional. And I'm like, but the founding fathers, (laughs) like, I think, and I I was just having a conversation with a practice owning friend of mine who's a black woman. And we were just talking about the belief that people are just going to move through the world with good intentions like we do you know and i think that's what it was i think it was just naivete on my part also mis miseducation on the part of our education systems right for me in particular why i didn't recognize it and i also think too for me personally there's something about In my healing from the trauma that my father caused me, who was a lawyer and a sadist and probably a psychopath in many ways, at least on the psychopathic spectrum, I didn't want to believe that he was bad because he was my father, you know? And so all of that shit is like tangled together. And I had to be able to come to terms with the evil that was inside of my father, because he's also he was a white supremacist. He literally said he married my mother because she had blonde hair and blue eyes because he wanted Aryan children. Wow. To really and like let's talk about this from a, a Resmaa Menikam's perspective, right? Like this Vimbasi, right? So we're both going through this training right now. And what I've really, really tuned into what I'm really hearing is that. There's so much there's so much pain and we're just skipping it over. Right. So when I really and I'm not even doing it right now, but when I really sit with the fact that my dad was a white supremacist and my grandfather on the other side was in the KKK, like my great grandfather, like that's in me. And to really be with that is fucking icky. Like that's just the word that's coming up right now. And That is, man, there is a a Vimbasi in there that I got to do. And just for listeners, Vimbasi is the um, acronym. I don't don't know if it's an acronym because it's not a word, but uh, it's the acronym for sort of how Resma encourages you to be with. It's the seven intelligences, right? That's what they call it. So the seven intelligences aside from thinking, (laughs) right? Because All we do in white supremacists, you know, that's all we value in in a white supremacist culture. So he's calling us to bring online these other intelligences to be with the reality of what we've all experienced,
2: not just people of color, but white people too. Yeah. We're all hurt by white supremacy. I mean, definitely some more than others. Right.
0: Right. And until I think white people have more of the recognition that you're talking about, then they continue to hold the power. They, they. <laughs> like, I'm not white. Come on. <laughs> right. We have to be willing to reconcile with that. And that's that's what I find really beautiful in the work that the white folks are doing in Resmus group. Are you in the POC group or are you
2: in? Yeah, I'm in the POC group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot to unpack in that experience. But, you know, I'll just share as a person of, color or a body of culture who can pass as white, who has white skin. I think your takeaway is spot on is that I think in everyday life, we just bypass moments that are so heavily charged without giving it the time and attention to unpack. The relevance in bringing up like my ethnicity and color is just that there was a quote, you know, somewhere in the workshop where somebody said you know as as a person of color who is not black you know that we need to contend at some point with our own oppression the weaponization of us by white folks and our complicity you know with anti-blackness those are things that we i feel like in everyday we just completely bypass and just miss these opportunities for deeper understanding of ourselves and as an intern of each other. Right. In my view, is what it takes to make these kinds of changes. It's really just shaking the foundation and letting it fall apart. Yes. The Tower card and tarot is coming to mind right now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without destruction, there can be no creation. And I think about that all the time. Right. And I do have compassion for the fact that it's scary and painful. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. But I also feel like we have no choice. (laughs) Right.
0: Right. And are you into astrology at all? Yeah. So while I'm thinking about the Pluto return of the United States... I'm not that deep into astrology, but it's fascinating for me. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the Pluto return is right. Like Pluto is the god of the underworld. And so everything is coming to the surface right now. And the choice is probably destruction of some sort. And the TBD, whether it will be destroyed and something better will be created or whether it will be destroyed and something worse will come in. And I guess like, you know, taking the charts of other countries who are much older than we are, like they can see the Pluto return is when big governmental shifts happen. And that's that's what's going on for the U.S. for I don't know how many more years. I am not an astrologer. I just listen to a lot of it. And it's I find the historical relevance of it so fascinating.
2: Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah. Mm hmm.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I'll send you some podcasts. Don't worry. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, what I'm also really appreciating about the work in this, I'm going to call it a class. It's not a class, but I am a fast moving person. I process quickly. Sarah Suzuki will tell you I'm the fast processor. She's ever met. Fastest processor. I multitask. I'm always doing something And my relationship with slowing down, I think, is really interesting because I know that's what I need to do in my own therapy. That's what I do in my, you know, work with clients. That's what I need to do. But in life, I have such a resistance to it. And there is no other way we have to slow down. And I don't know about you, but I have felt so discombobulated and out of whack with the way the world sped back up and it's not post COVID, but we're post the acute part of COVID, you know, the lockdown piece of it. And I am finding it really hard to be with the rhythms inside of me and participate in the world around me.
2: Yeah, I feel that. Me too. And and I think a lot of the folks that I talk to feel that way, you know, whether or not they can articulate it or not. Right. Yeah. I mean, just this massive intentional push to get back Mm -hmm. to how things were so we can continue accumulating and hoarding our wealth and power, you know, selling these ideals of, you know, productivity and meritocracy and, and all of that. And maybe this is just for me so I can have some hope, but I feel like, you know, a lot of us who are feeling that are Maybe right now sitting in isolation, you know, working through it. But I feel like at some point, you know, there will be emerging of that energy and that resistance. Yeah. The image of like ocean currents always come up for me when I'm thinking about Mm. this. And just like how strong and fast ocean currents are. And, you know, we're required to hop on them to get from... A to B, to pay our bills, to make the car payment. How impossible it feels when you're in it to slow down Mm -hmm. or even stop and look at yourself and how intentional then it becomes to step out of the current for a moment or to slow down, even though it it may feel like you're the only one. Yeah.
0: Well, this is also making me think of the labor movement that's happening right now. And I have many feelings about it. If we had to paint broad strokes, I'm in favor of workers' rights. However, there's so many nuances, right? Because I was just talking with this uh, practice owner who's Black and one of her potential, her intern that she wants to hire had said to her, my friends are making 60% as employees at other practices. Why won't you pay me that? I need to be paid my worth. And while I agree that everybody needs to be paid their worth, small businesses, we're not Jeff Bezos, right? But as a codependent person and as someone who helps a lot of codependent people, I find that usually when we start to learn what boundaries are, we use them as a weapon and we set them like brick walls. (laughs) So we go from no boundaries to my boundaries are impenetrable and we can't do this. I think that's what's happening right now. Labor movement wise, is people are saying enough, we need to stop this nonsense. And yet it's kind of going too far in some in some right like, you know what? Fuck Jeff Bezos. Fuck Starbucks. They need to pay people a living wage and all of the things. But when it comes to like industries like mental health, the industry has to change. It's not going to start with the small business owner paying more. It's going to start the fucking insurance companies. Yeah, absolutely. Like, let's go to where the power is. And it's not with us small business owners because we're in the same boat, right? Like, I was talking to this practice owner. I'm like, you make just as much as someone who is brand new in the therapy field and you've got 30 years experience. Tell me how that's fair. So, again, I don't want anybody to come away from this thinking Sarah is anti-labor and my one of my BFFs would literally murder me, it's not about anti-labor. It's about like changing bigger systems.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You resonate with that? I do. I mean, I I haven't thought this through so thoroughly, but I hear things and I I notice patterns of even all the way on the the left or, you know, among progressives or among uh, grassroots organizations even though maybe the ideals are not are anti-capitalist or, or anti-racist or anti-oppression, the practices are still kind of replicating the same things, the same sense of urgency mm-hmm. or rigidity. Right, right, yes, yes. Which you. I think it's in the way of the movement and, and burns people out and does not achieve the outcome really that is required, is, is needed. Which is why, like, this, this somatic work and some of the stuff that Resma's is doing and a lot of, you know, Resma Menachem and a lot of other people is that change really does need to be on a cellular level, on the, the DNA level for this
0: to really work. It does. And from a norm perspective and I'm always hearing sort of what Resma and the team are saying is we have to build capacity to tolerate the truth. Because when I think of like, let's take any Joe Schmo, corporate executive sales sort of person, I want to believe because this is just what I feel about humanity. I want to believe that his real goals are actually not to make money, but it's about feeling worthy it's about wanting to support a family that he cares about or something like that right i think and this is just i think my sort of like buddhist orientation that the truth is in us it's just like what are the layers of acculturation or bullshit that get in the way of what's actually
2: true yeah And, and i think we are conditioned to pay more attention to the external noise than we are To our own senses you know and working with folks and just you know myself you know folks who have experienced trauma or or even just the average person like the ability to trust one's own senses right we are taught not to (laughs) in every way every turn right whether it's for the sake of survival or for the sake of the dollar
0: I was just thinking or
2: the sake of
0: because when I think about my family and the rejection of truth, it was for the sake of appearances of who I believe myself to be my mom. And this goes back to the social workers, too. Right. Of like, what is the true intention? Like my mom needed to believe that she was through and through like a helper and could not see how harmful she had been to me. Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
2: Ooh, girl. Look at this. Good shit, right? Just because I think of my approaches and my point of view, I don't tend to have a whole lot of white clients. But when I do, I have noticed that dynamic of, and it could be true of other people too, but just this, the fierceness of, holding up certain perceptions. Yeah. And the intense fear that comes along with anybody seeing anything, you know, besides that, you know, that appearance or presentation, it's just too much to tolerate, which in a lot of ways I feel like that's the work that needs to be done. Like that is the root of, yeah, not wanting to see things that make you uncomfortable. Right. And and it causes so much pain.
0: So much pain.
2: And I I always think about that. Like,
0: why me? Why did I get out? Why did I start to see things differently? And like most of the rest of my family didn't. Like, I'm lucky that my brother and I are at least politically aligned and, you know, think different points along that journey. But, you know, and seeing the way that our family created so much unnecessary pain. But like, why? Why me? You know, why you? And not somebody else in your family before you.
2: And it's, it's usually the most vulnerable that pay, you know, the highest price. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just thinking about, you know, children, mm-hmm. women or non-binary folks. Totally.
0: Well, maybe we should uh, segue to the wounded healer questions. So I guess first, how do you feel about the term healer is applied to what you do? And who you are.
2: I am uncomfortable with the word healer. For me, I, that just awards me too much power and ownership over somebody else's process. I think if, if I were to characterize what I do in any way, I think I'm a space holder for folks who may have never had the space to just be before. I feel like I am a companion in a lot of ways along somebody else's journey, a witness. I think one of the things that's just important to me in in all of this is continuously self reflecting so that I can provide safe enough spaces for the folks that I'm working with. Yeah, accountability. And I, I don't believe I'll ever get to a place where that's done. And so that, that's something also that's always, you know, in the front of my mind, the wounded part, I can definitely identify with. Okay. So wounded healer, you're like, I. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of misperception about what a therapist should be or is in order to provide this service or care for someone else. And many people are shocked to find out that, you know, We're a mess, too. (laughs) Yeah, right? Right? And I mean, that's one of my, that is
0: one of my missions is to share, honestly, with people. And, you know, that's the thing about self-disclosure, right? Like, I think, I mean, I definitely don't share all of the details with my clients. No one who knows me listens to this podcast. I just got to say, like, my the the closest people to me do not listen to this. (laughs) <laughs> I'm never worried like people are like oh my god are you worried your client's gonna hear you they don't fucking listen they're tired of hearing my mouth once a week they don't listen to this but sharing with other either therapists or aspiring therapists because that's something I've heard too like Margaret Rain who was one of the OG listeners of the podcast uh, and she now has her own podcast called Un- is it oh I'm gonna look it up because I want to say it correctly um, but she was somebody who reached out to me and said that she thought she was too fucked up to be a therapist. And, you know, after talking to her for five minutes, I was like, no, like you're, you're fine. It's unrefined women podcast with her sister, Agnes. So shout out to her. That's why I share my wounds
2: because I want y'all to know it's okay. Right, right. And to be honest, I could be wrong, but I, I think it makes me a better therapist. Oh, I think so. Yeah, you know, and I do my own work so I can stay, you know, regulated, you know, to an extent, right, you know, when'm I'm, I'm with folks, but my experience with my own trauma, there is something to be said with like knowing, like, yes, I know what that feels like, and I can tell you, it gets better. Yes, yeah. I agree.
0: Totally. Yeah, I never thought of myself as having experienced trauma until I started training in trauma and learned more about like, oh, that's, yeah, okay, yeah, that was trauma. And I <laughs> I healed from that in some way. And to have, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but the listeners do, I put myself into a trauma treatment program in 2020 because I was... I was coming undone. And I knew I was not able to help anyone. I wasn't even able to help myself too. And having that experience of, you know, working with a lot of addiction clients and putting myself through treatment and, you know, so and now I can say like, I I won't recommend anything. I haven't done myself because I've done it too.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Although I think one of the challenging things about this profession is taking your own advice. <laughs> I struggle with that sometimes.
0: Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'll do big things, but the small
0: things like be self-compassionate. But I'll put myself in treatment.
2: <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I, I think that's changed, but for a long time, as long as I have been working with folks who have been through trauma, it it took me years to realize that Yes, I have been traumatized, and some of the things that I'm experiencing is because of that. It's not my personality, right. It's not who I am. Yeah.-hmm. And a lot of that came through from doing this work and being like, "Oh man, like I feel that same way. I do that same thing." Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of the
0: gift, I think. I really think that being a therapist is a privilege. And to be able to hold that sacred space and allow ourselves to be changed by our clients, like, God damn, that's beautiful.
2: That is definitely true. I feel like we live in such an individualist culture where we're so isolated from each other. And I feel like a lot of us are walking around feeling like we're the only ones. Yeah. And I do feel like I have that privilege to witness other people's experiences and know that no All of us feel this way at some point. We're not the only ones. Yeah. That brings me some comfort. Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of
2: the hour. Do you want to advertise... Chicago Compass Counseling? Sure. I can't say enough good things about Chicago Compass Counseling as an employee and just, you know, getting to know my coworkers and Sarah Suzuki there. Mm-hmm. And any place where I can work and feel regulated <laughs> and, and appreciative, um, I definitely think that says a lot for their therapist too. So if if folks are looking for a therapist that thinks about Liberation, anti-racism, and just seeing things from a from a different perspective. I think Chicago Compass, you know, is where it's at.
0: <laughs> yep, and had heart therapy.
2: Yes, of <laughs> course,
0: of course. Oh, yes, yeah. just us,
2: uh, just us too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it's not me anymore today. Literally, today is the end of the business sale. I oh, am wow. no longer the owner as of right, like an hour ago.
2: Wow, yeah. that, that's
0: bittersweet. Yeah, I feel I'm not I'm not feeling I was gonna say I feel Mm -hmm. fine. I'm not right now. (laughs) I'm just not feeling it. So I'll slow down later and weep. It'll be. good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, anything you want to leave listeners with today? I think, if anything, something that I just like to share with everyone is that if you're feeling it, it, it's probably true. There's there's something there. Yeah. Um, and I just encourage folks to just explore and unearth and self-reflect and begin to learn how to trust your instincts again and your senses. Mm. I mean, yeah. I think we could all benefit from that. I think you're right. Well, Christine,
0: you were nervous when we started. How are you feeling now? that it's done.
2: Still nervous, <laughs> but I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy oh, to have done this. Good. Me too. I'm not used to being on a podcast, but it was a it was a great first experience Yay! with you. So. Everything
0: else will pale in comparison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I always appreciate it. I, I know you said like, oh, I don't really have a social media presence. Like, I don't. I mean, sure. Sometimes I'm like, oh, this is going to get a lot of listens. It's really I choose people to be on the show because of their hearts. And that's what I saw in you and wanted to share your heart with everybody who listens to the podcast.
2: Well, I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity to share my experience. Yeah. I got you. <laughs> Thank you.
1: I'm Sarah Bueno, And I'm Anne Rennie. Thanks to our guests for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. You can find Sarah at, at Head Heart Biz Therapy on Facebook and Instagram.
0: And you can find Anne at at SpareRoomWellness or SpareRoomWellness.com. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.